following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. verse 22. We'll pick up here and seek to finish this chapter of John 3 today, considering it. Listen as I read from God's Word, John 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way, and he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true." For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God still remains on him. In my opinion, which I'm sure is biased, but I hope historically informed, I would offer you the conjecture that perhaps the most gifted preacher who's ever been heard in the English-speaking world was the Reverend George Whitfield. Now, I never heard him. Of course I didn't. He was born 300 years ago this December. How I wish that somehow CD technology could make a sermon of George Whitfield available for us to hear. I have to accept the witness and the evidence of history and the response to the Word of God as George Whitfield preached it three centuries ago. As I said, born almost 300 years ago, later this year, while he was in his early 20s, 21 or 22, 
Whitfield became the first true, people have said, the first true international celebrity. Now, maybe you think of the word celebrity as a negative word, you know, some kind of a movie star who sort of parades around in the fashion world or something like that. That's not what we mean. We mean a truly famous person. He was truly famous both in England and America, crossed the ocean 13 times in his life. That alone is amazing by the means of transportation he had to use. And the voice of this talented, gifted man of God, more than any other single voice, was responsible for the movement we call the Great Awakening of the 18th century, when people came to Christ by the thousands. Whitfield's preaching gifts are said to be so extraordinary, you have to judge it by the response that here in our country or in England, wherever he was, if someone said Whitfield is going to preach today at 10 a.m., oftentimes an hour before he arrived, the place was thronged by thousands who awaited hearing him. There were times when he was scheduled to be at a church, and when he arrived, he couldn't get in the building. They had to hand him in the window, actually, so that he could get in to preach. Because people so longed to hear this man eloquently present the gospel of Christ. Benjamin Franklin happened to become a friend of Whitfield's, even though Franklin, by his own admission, never was a believer in Christ. But he was interested in this man and and regarded him as, as a phenomenon. And Franklin once, while Whitfield was preaching in an open area in Philadelphia, spent his time during the sermon not listening to the content of the sermon, but conducting a sort of scientific experiment. He paced all the way around the crowd to calculate the area that was jammed with people shoulder to shoulder and how far away he could still hear at the fringes of the crowd. And then he calculated that there were 30,000 people gathered. By the way, the population of Philadelphia at that time was less than 20,000 people. Amazing. And everyone could hear him. There was no sound system, I guarantee you. There was another historic preacher whose name you would know if I told it, and I'm not going to, who began as Whitfield's friend at Oxford University, a man who was somewhat older. Whitfield actually was converted before this older man, and Whitfield helped this man, the second man, become established in his ministry. When he departed for America with crowds longing to hear him, literally following him to the wharf and to the boat, he turned a lot of his ministry over to this man and asked this man to carry on for him while he was in America. Amazingly, one of the things this man did not so many months later was to publish a scathing attack in print on George Whitfield, calling him a heretic. If you were to read that, and I have it in my possession, what he wrote, it's really a very flimsy thing, and it bears no weight. The evidence isn't there for what was claimed. And you would have thought that Whitfield would have retaliated at such a man, a friend who turned on him like that. But George Whitfield remained gracious to this man. Every letter he ever wrote, and he wrote many the rest of his life, to this man was a gracious letter. And yet, this individual often continued attacking Whitfield, attacking his doctrines, and promoting himself. 
Now, ironically, that man was able by considerable administrative skills to gather around him so many followers of his own that a whole denomination came out of it. And his name is prominent in that denomination. And I'm not telling you the name because I don't wish to defame him. But he deserves criticism. This man has his name carried on today. Whitfield, on the other hand, repeatedly said to his followers, let the name of Whitfield perish so that Jesus Christ alone may be known. And that's what he was truly about. A rare, famous, highly gifted man who truly displayed an authentic humility in the sight of God. As we've studied John 3, we've already heard Jesus predict and speak through the dialogue with Nicodemus about the need of a radical rebirth in all of us, that the Holy Spirit must take hold of us, change us, turn us to the things of God to which we are not naturally inclined, and awaken our hearts to God. And then by that renewal, we would be able to come and do what John 3.16 bids, that we would believe in Him and not perish the Son of God. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes should not perish. We talked last week a little bit about what perishing is, being condemned already in the sight of God. Well, now as this third chapter closes out, we see a kind of exit by an important character as John the Baptist is speaking his last major words in the Gospel of John. This gospel does not record what the other three do, something about the death of John, although it's hinted at it. Uh, Verse 24 says John had not yet been put in prison, so, you know, it's hinted that that was going to happen. And in fact, if you want the chronology and the others, uh, you could look in Matthew 14 or Mark 6, and you'd find the death of John at the hands of Herod Antipas occurring Uh, right before the feeding of the 5,000. So if it was in John, I suspect it would have been about at the end of chapter 5, but it's not there. It's just understood that it happened. This central figure, John the Baptist, who introduced Jesus, you remember, he was the one who baptized him, who pointed to him and said to others, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's now being kind of written out of the story. I think of an interesting TV series many of you have watched that uh, I'm sure that some of you will follow the thread of my meaning where a major character last season was written out of the script. He didn't want to be on the show anymore, and so he was killed. And he's in the story, that is. Not literally killed, but uh, he's not in the story anymore. Well, in a sense, that's what happened with John. His temporary role, his role of being the announcer, the introducer, is done. And so what we're hearing here at the end of John 3 is the last word and testament, you might say, of this important man, John the Baptist. The subject that focuses it, and particularly the strong declaration of verse 30 here in our text, the memorable sentence that John speaks in verse 30, brings us this subject of Christian humility, a premier virtue of Christians. Christians are not known to be and should not be known to be bold and arrogant and rude and boastful and proud of themselves and promoting themselves all the time. Their behavior should be humble. 
This is a fruit of the Spirit of God. It's an evidence that God is working in a person because it's a Christ-like character virtue. Humility requires a clear-eyed recognition by every individual that I'm proud. And if you're a person who says, well, I'm not proud, congratulations, you're proud. You just said so by denying it. You see, that's the diabolical nature of this. If you say, I'm humble, no, you're not, because humility is not something you brag about. It's something you practice. It's a recognition of pride and a battle against it. C.S. Lewis wrote one time, as long as the believer knows he is proud, he is safe against the worst effects of that pride. Well, today I want to give you two main points with some subheads for each about the subject here of John the Baptist's exit in the Gospel of John. And first, verses 22 through 30 show, I believe, a model Christian who sought to make himself disappear. A model Christian who sought to make himself disappear. Remember back in John 1, the Baptist was the one who announced Jesus, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A dramatic, amazing announcement. Now, if his followers, John's followers, had really grasped what Jesus was saying, Wouldn't you think they would have gotten up and marched off and become disciples of Jesus right away? What were they doing still hanging out with John, calling him the master, when he had pointed and said, here's the Messiah? But I don't think they really got it. And uh, here they are, gathered around him, and they were having some kind of discussion about baptism. And they said, by the way, uh, Rabbi, John, do you realize that guy you pointed out the other day, Jesus, uh, look at him. He's over there nearby, and more people are following him than you. Why, it's scandalous. You were here first. Aren't you jealous? Master, you gave that man his start, and here he is stealing all the people. His star is rising. And if they were frank, they would have said, it looks like yours is falling. I think it's an amazing thing that In any spiritual movement, there's always this kind of factionalism and this kind of jealousy and this kind of watching what somebody else is doing. Let there be another church in the community that's growing faster, that's piling in hundreds of people. And guess what? Many other biblical churches, oh, well, that place is growing so fast. Why, it couldn't be really biblical or it wouldn't be that popular. Let me tell you, that's a common Christian sympathy. Why? Because people are jealous. You know, I'm not here to judge whether a large church is a right church or not, but that's the way we talk. And we feel that somehow we're being slighted if they're advancing. Well, John 3.27 shows us a first step of real humility by John. You see, he wasn't cranky and jealous like his disciples were. He was, in a word, content. And he shows it. He says, a man can receive only what is given to him from heaven. John the Baptist was trusting in the full sovereignty and the providence of God and saying, look, I have my place. God has given me what he's given to me and allowed me to do what I've done, and that's his gift. That's his place for me. I've sought to be faithful. I'm content. That man you're talking about, he could have said, is the Messiah. 
Of course more people are going after him. That's as it should be. That's his gift. That's his place. I wonder if we're able to similarly understand and not be put out of joint when some other Christian or some other movement or some other church goes forward and sees things, sees blessings perhaps that we don't see. If we had John the Baptist's contentment in the sovereign place of God for our lives, we would be able to say, well, if I'm being honored today, that's God's gift to me. If I'm being dishonored or neglected or defamed, well, God's permitting that. And I'll follow that as his gift. You see, John wasn't living by hyping his own reputation or puffing himself up or sort of pushing others out there and saying, hey, you know, would you go to the next town and let them know I'm coming and kind of be my advanced man so that I'm received well when I come? John hadn't seen, John the Baptist, that is, hadn't seen, of course, the verse of 1 Corinthians 4, 7 because it hadn't been written yet. But if he'd seen it, he would say, along with Paul, what makes you any different from anyone else, and what do you have that you did not receive? You see, whatever gifts God has given us, whatever fame, whatever place, whatever lack of notice he's given us, is God's gift. Can you possibly be content and dethrone that selfish striving that we're all so prone to? And then I like it, too, what John said in verse 29. He emphasized the point a slightly different way under another subpoint there when he referred to the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom. And I think you can understand what he was saying there. He's saying, look, I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm the best man at Jesus' wedding to his church, if you will. Now, in that day, the best man had a, usually a pretty important role. He was kind of the master of ceremonies. He arranged a lot of things for the wedding. Today, you know, if you've ever been a best man, you don't have to do a whole lot. You show up. You better make sure you have the bride's ring in your pocket for the right moment when it's asked for. And, and maybe you have to sign the license. Not in Pennsylvania. We don't need witnesses. But, you know, best man doesn't do a whole lot, actually. Gives a toast at the reception. But best men then did a lot. They had to serve the happiness and well-being of the entire wedding, and especially of their friend, the bridegroom. There was actually a curious ancient law in Mesopotamia, not among the the Jews, but this was a Mesopotamian law discovered uh, some time ago, that there was one thing the best man at an ancient wedding was not allowed to do on penalty of death. Can you guess? he could not romance the bride and run off with her. Because that, of course, was the obvious turnaround of what he was there to do. He was there to serve the happiness of the groom and the bride. So his somehow forming an attachment to the bride was a death penalty problem. Well, John says, I'm glad to be the best man of Jesus as he's the bridegroom of his church, come to seek that church. That's my role. I know my place. I don't have a problem with it. And then with that, verse 30 comes, this great saying that's so memorable. He, the bridegroom, must increase while I decrease. I'm happy to exit stage left. I don't want to upstage Christ. 
You know, there are many organizations, of course, that need a good primary leader, a visible leader. Maybe he's the spokesman or the chief creative person or the manager or the owner or the founder or something, and he stands perhaps at the top of the organizational pyramid, whether he's the president of the company or, or the principal of the school or the pastor of the church or whatever. But let me tell you, in whatever realm you're looking in, if there's going to be an effective leader, there has to be, absolutely has to be, many effective second-tier leaders who are doing their jobs very well. And they may get rather little praise for it, rather little notice. John the Baptist, you know, yes, we, Jesus called him the greatest of all the prophets. But gee, uh, it seems like Elijah had a bigger role. He's got more attention in the Bible. Isaiah got more attention to him. John just did this little thing. And then his role was over. But what an important little thing it was. And he was willing, he said, to be second and content to be second and to serve. Think of the people who did that sort of thing. Mary, the mother of Jesus. What an error we make to somehow inflate her into a divine or near-divine being or something. That wasn't her role. She had a crucial role, an absolutely important role, one she accepted with humility and great grace. But it was a role that she did, and then she left the scene. Joseph, her husband, similarly protected Mary and the infant Christ. His was a vital role. Jesus could have been killed without Joseph taking them to Egypt and protecting the family. But it was just a little role, and he did it, and then he was gone. Aaron, remember Aaron supporting Moses? Barnabas? There was no Apostle Paul without Barnabas introducing Paul to the Jerusalem disciples and allowing him to become accepted. Jonathan, the son of King Saul, who gave up his place willingly to his good friend David. Do you see how important it is sometimes to be second and be willing to be second for the glory of God? You see, John the Baptist realized that whatever his place was, it was understood and measured by the one who was first, Jesus Christ. The principle I see here is that whenever you would most acutely and steadily realize you are dwelling in the presence of an incomparably great person, you will never be able to be too preoccupied with yourself. I want to give you a human illustration of that, and, and it's pretty flawed, but let me tell it anyway. I've told this story to some friends, so sorry if it's a repeat, but I remember a day in 1992 when I was having breakfast one morning in a diner in Maryland. I was getting my day organized and writing in my day timer and had my newspaper reading that. And I was starting to wrap up my breakfast, and I was the only customer in this little diner. And when another man came in, I was sitting in a booth, no one across from me. All the other booths were empty, and a man was seated in the next booth, and he didn't have his back to me. He faced me, so he was about 12 feet away. I could see him. And I looked, and I puzzled for a minute because I wasn't quite sure, but then it struck me like a thunderbolt because I knew this famous individual lived in that community, and I knew all of a sudden that there he was, former Baltimore Colts quarterback Johnny Unitas 
was 12 feet away from me. Now, I grew up in the 1950s, and wow, I don't know who you'd put on that place of sports heroism today, but Johnny Unitas was as high as it went in the 1950s. There he sat. Now, I'm a pretty affable guy. I tend to greet people, and I can talk to people easily. You probably would not believe that your pastor could ever be completely tongue-tied, but I was. I was starstruck. That's all I can tell you. That's Johnny Unitas. Should I say hello? Should I give him a napkin and ask if he would sign it? I'm serious. I'm sitting there having this dialogue, trying not to stare at him. I didn't greet him, and I didn't ask him for his autograph. I've sort of regretted it all my days ever since that I didn't. But I was just thunderstruck that that was Johnny Unitas sitting there. Now, that's a flawed illustration, but have you ever been starstruck by someone? Have you ever met the President of the United States or, you know, some really famous person and you just thought, oh, I get to say hello. I get to have my selfie taken with this person or whoever, you know? That's what John the Baptist was like when he said, Christ must increase, I must decrease. I'm nobody. Now, that isn't a natural attitude because our pride says, I'm somebody, I'm everything, I'm the center of attention. And people who will go that way, of course, do everything in their lives to make themselves the center of attention and cannot quite comprehend that it isn't all about themselves. But you see, Christian humility has you say, I'm content to be second, or even third or fourth or fifth, if that's the role God has called me to. Because I now live in a relationship of praise and adoration and wonderment at the glory of the person of Jesus Christ, God in flesh, and the knowledge of that relationship to him changes me and transfixes my attention in a way that my little experience with the puny fame of Johnny Unitas, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, was nothing. You see, I spend my days and my weeks 12 feet away in adoration of the Savior of the world. The one who was God in flesh, the fullness of God in a human body, Paul called him in Colossians. Folks, shouldn't we be living so absorbed by him and who he is and so desirous to learn of him and converse with him and understand him and follow him that we can't possibly be full of ourselves anymore. You see, that's what this is all about. And so secondly, I come to a shorter and reinforcing point as we look at verses 31 to 36 and see here how a humble Christian always exalts Christ first and always. Look at the way John the Baptist did exalt Christ. He said, he who comes from above is above all. He is of the earth, belongs to the earth, and speaks in an earthly way. What he meant there was, look, I'm a prophet. I'm thankful from God to be a prophet, but I'm still a man of the earth. I can only say what God gives me to say. Christ comes from above. He speaks firsthand of the truths of God and of eternal things because he has witnessed them. I speak only secondhand and in a fragmentary way, John was saying. And then 
Further, he goes on here and says in verse 34, also there's this reference to the idea expressed elsewhere that to Christ had been given the Holy Spirit without measure. In other words, not in a stingy little bits here and there. You know, it says in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit fell upon David and he prophesied, or, or the Spirit came upon Miriam and she said this. And, and God gave men and women to do and say things in momentary ways or maybe even for a period of time as his Spirit worked. But only of one person does the Bible say the Spirit was poured out in fullness nonstop without measure that was Jesus. So not only does he come from heaven and speak of firsthand heavenly things, secondly, he has the Spirit without measure. And third sub-point here, the Father loves his Son and has given everything into his hand. In other words, the Son is the heir. The Son is the one who receives the Father's own authority and blessing. Why would we not exalt him first and always is this second point being made. We cannot make too much of Christ. The writer J.C. Ryle always expresses things so well. He said, we can never love Christ too much, trust Christ too implicitly, lay too much weight upon Christ, or speak his praise too highly. We can't overdo it in the department of exalting Christ because he deserves all that we could possibly bring to him. You see how this is the center then of Christian humility? Christian humility means living in the presence of a Lord so exalted, so high, so great, that any length of time, I don't care if you're 94 or 105 today and have known Christ for many, many decades, you haven't exhausted the potential of knowing him and praising him. John the Baptist was saying, you folks who followed me, I'm thankful for you. You've been a real help to me, but you have to understand, I'm on the way out. Christ is on the way up. And I'm prepared for the day when I'll be bowing before him in heavenly glory. James chapter 4 verse 6 says to us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So he says, humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of God, and he will soon lift you up. Another writer wrote a wise thing and said, God is the one who created everything out of nothing. Now listen, if he created everything out of nothing, here's the other thing this writer said, and each person he intends to truly use, he must first reduce to nothing. That's why God could use John the Baptist, because he was reduced to nothing. And he could be God's mouthpiece and God's channel and be content in that. Can we say, I must decrease, he must increase? Or are we living for our own publicity program, our own get all my needs fulfilled and maybe honor Christ if I have any time left over? What Christian humility requires is simply becoming more and more occupied with another person who is infinitely deserving of it, and then less and less occupied with ourselves. We're going to sing as we close worship today, and you know, I'm, I'm actually a little disappointed. I gave you the hymn that's printed in your bulletin, 
There's two versions of this hymn, and I didn't give you the hymn, the version that I wished I would have or could have, but I couldn't find it. It's an old hymn. It pertains to our theme, but the version I couldn't find has a refrain that is sung after each of the four verses. And because that refrain is not printed in the song you're going to sing with me, I want to tell you at least what it is, because I think it's very potent and very fine. The refrain to this hymn has a short prayer sung very reverently that says, Oh, to be saved from myself, dear Lord. Oh, to be lost in Thee. Oh, that it might be no more I, but Christ who lives in me. Do you understand you need to be saved from yourself? You need to be saved from sin, but you need to be saved from yourself too so that you might serve one who is infinitely greater than yourself. Oh, that it might be no more I, but Christ who lives in me. Father, may this be our prayer. May this be the fruit of humility in our Christian lives. May we duck our heads and move away from the praise and acclaim that piles upon us for anything and seek to put your name front and center, that others might exalt you and know the blessing of serving you and living in the radiance of your great presence. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.